journey with me for a moment. So we're going to go back in time, right? I want you to join me in the Imagination Station. We're going to go back to the mid-50s A.D. Okay, so it's the mid-50s A.D. A man named Paul has been traveling the world, spreading the good news about Jesus of Nazareth. And Paul believes that this Jesus is God incarnate and the Savior of the entire world. This all started when Paul encountered the risen Jesus who'd been crucified before that in Jerusalem. And before this, Paul had persecuted Christians. And now he's made this drastic move in his life to be on mission. And if you're going to define Paul's life in one phrase, it would be on mission. This is what he is about. And when we meet him in this moment, that we're at in our imaginary journey. He's near the end of his third missionary journey. He's traveled large portions of the known world of the time twice over already, and now he's doing it again. And he desires to see the Christians in Rome. And he writes what must be the most formative theological book in the New Testament, Romans. He writes this to the Roman church, and he tells them this little factoid near the end, which I think is so often missed in the middle of Romans, and it's so telling of who he is. In Romans 15, 22, he says that he plans to go to Rome, and then from there, launch a mission to Spain. Now let's take a moment, put a pin in that, let's journey to the other side of the world. And the other side of the world, near India, according to the Syrian church tradition, Thomas, who had once been called the doubter, right? He's the one who had doubted Jesus' resurrection until he could put his own hands in Jesus' wounds. He is bringing the gospel to India. So think about this for a moment. Known world of the time, geography of the ancient Near East. You have Paul on one side trying to get to Spain, the furthest western point and what is the known world for them? And then on the other side, you have Thomas going to India, the furthest eastern point of the known world for them. Something is going on here. Paul and Thomas are attempting to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. They're trying to change the world. And they're following Jesus' commandment in Acts 1.8, when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and all Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Right? And of course, we know in this point in time, people believe they could actually fall off the end of the earth. So they're going to the ends of the earth. And from the very inception of the church, we see something here that they saw themselves as people on mission, as missionaries. If you were Christian, you were a missionary. They're bringing the gospel to the very ends of the earth. And the former persecutor and the former doubter have now dedicated their lives to this cause. We should do the same. And the reason, the reason why I think this is so critical to keep into perspective is because the work of bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth is so far from complete. So far. There are over 3,000 people groups without a single missionary. Dead serious. This is a real fact. 3,000 people groups without a single missionary. And it's estimated that 
of the church's resources go where the gospel is already present. Meaning that less than one half of 1% of the church's resources go to bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. They actually go where the church already is. Now, that doesn't mean we should stop giving to those funds, but we need to somehow multiply this and think about this in a different way. And that's where our interconnected world comes in. That's where technology comes in. That's where the resources of today come in. And like Thomas, I went to India because I had heard about this place where there was 101 million people who had never heard the name of Jesus. And it's in a state that's in Northeast India called Bihar. And Bihar is known as the most backward of the backward states in India. And the reason why is this phrase, which is, sounds very derogatory, but it's actually used in common speech in India, probably is derogatory, but still used, is it refers to states that are no longer infrastructurally supported by the government of India. And Bihar is known as the one that is the worst in that scenario. 15% of India's poor lives in this state. 15%. And in Bihar, I heard about this guy named Bijou Thomas, who I come to know through a friend of a friend. And he was bringing the gospel to this unreached people group. This people group where there's a hundred million people who had never heard the name of Jesus. And so I said to myself, I am on a plane. I got to get there. I got to see this with my own eyes. And in Bihar, I met hundreds of people who had heard the name of Jesus for the first time through this effort. And it radically altered my life. And I personally witnessed hundreds of people hearing the name of Jesus for the first time, right there, in those moments that I was there. And I just simply could not live in a world where this type of work was going on with so little funding and they were still making it happen, and think about what could be, and not do something. I felt like I had to take action, I had to be more involved. So I shadowed Bijou and I watched what was going on. And there's one moment in particular that kind of all of this crystallized for me. I was there and I was witnessing all these amazing things happen, all these miracles, all this incredible action of the Holy Spirit, thinking about how this is just like the book of Acts. This looks and feels just like it. People pulling their resources together to help the poor, people giving of their time and money to help the poor who don't even have much themselves, to help people poorer than themselves, watching all these things happen. But it, with all that amazing stuff, the moment that actually seriously changed me was the look on one girl's face. And I probably shouldn't say girl, she was about 16, so a young woman. And I remember we were, we were talking about the gospel of this group of young people, and I had seen her and got to know her a few days before this, and she was always so sad. You know, her face just looked absolutely gloomy. Like she just did not care about anything anymore. Like depression had just completely taken over. And she walks up the aisle and there's this giant smile on her face. And I realized in that moment, something had changed. That from ear to ear was a smile. And I realized that this girl looked so gloomy and in so much pain was in fact beautiful underneath. And that she was in just so much pain. And that Jesus had gotten a hold of her in that moment and changed it all. And the beauty that was inside of her was coming out now and showing on her face. And you could see her eyes sparkling again. Like, I am not kidding. 
I, there's suddenly like there was a sparkle in her eyes that wasn't there before. And she walked up and she told me the story of her life. And how she had come from this poor remote village where she would walk miles to go to school and the teacher wouldn't be there half the time. And how her father was an alcoholic. And how her mother had come to Christianity and couldn't handle the oppressive environment of her father anymore. And so had gone to the city to try to get work and have a different life. And then asked her daughter to come along when her daughter finally realized this is the best thing for me too. And her daughter is the one that I met. And this, this young woman, she, you, you can just see in her that something is, she's fighting something. And she ends up telling me that what she wants to see more than anything in the world is that her highly oppressive and abusive father come to Jesus because of the joy she had just experienced. Her first thought as a new Christian is, how can I love the person who's oppressed me? And I thought, this must be Christ. Because to learn to love your enemy in an immediate moment, this man whom she hated, this must be Jesus. And her entire life changed from that moment on. And there's a whole other story that goes into the amazing work that went into her life to, to help her come along in life. But what occurred in that moment is that she realized the religious mantras that she had been told to pray and say and all these things were only just making it worse and that Jesus was the freedom she needed. And I thought, there are another, what, if there's 100 million people here, 25, 50 million of them must be children who are just like her, who can't find education, who can't get their needs met, who deal with oppressive religion and parents and all kinds of things from, from the horrible things going on. And what could we do to create more moments like this for her? And I want to see that kind of joy reach every last person in our world. I want to see that kind of joy take over their lives. And so that's why Jesus Economy, the organization I lead, that's why we dedicated our energy to this region, because there are 100 million people like her who have never had this opportunity. And when I left Bihar, I thought, if the book of Acts is happening today in Bihar, perhaps our model could emerge from that book itself. Perhaps that's where the model for the future of missions is. And what if the answers to our problems are right there in the Bible? So jumping back to the story of Thomas and Paul, bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. From the beginning of the early church, we see that there is a concern for the impoverished and for effective alleviation of poverty. So I don't think we realize this a lot in Acts as we kind of jump around the narrative, but there's actually these key moments where we see them caring a lot about how they alleviate poverty, and we see them being very concerned for, for the poor themselves. So right off the bat, early Christians are pulling their resources for the sake of the marginalized and the impoverished. This is what we see in Acts 2, 44 to 45. Self-sacrifice is a core part of the gospel. It's not just a commitment to Jesus. It's action on behalf of Jesus. And they show us something at this moment, that we have to be willing to sacrifice our own comforts for the sake of the impoverished. And I think of Jesus' definition of how he said he would distinguish between those who are his followers and those who are not. Jesus does say this, by the way. It's in, it's in Matthew. And he tells us 
that it's going to be by whether or not they care for the least of these, as this phrase goes, which he defines as the marginalized, the outsider, the imprisoned, the outcast, the person who's poor. And this is how he is going to look at the distinction between those who have truly taken on his message and those who have not. And I think also of the moment that Jesus had with, you know, this this young, we, we describe him as the rich young ruler, we don't really know. He clearly had some sort of possessions, but where Jesus tells the man, you know, sell all your stuff and follow me. That's what, that's what you need personally, buddy. That's what you need to understand what it means to truly embrace the gospel. And I think of my moment of how I used to sing this song at a church we went to that, well, the, the church used to sing the song that was, if you ask me to sell everything and follow you, I am willing to. And I could not sing this line. I knew that I knew that I believed in Jesus. I knew that I wanted to follow him. But I knew that if he asked me what he had asked that young man, I would have done the same thing. I would have turned around and walked away and went home. And my story is that God did ultimately call me to that. That's not everyone's calling. That was my calling. But he did call me to that, to sell all my stuff and follow Jesus for the sake of these people, for the sake of this idea. And when he did, I must tell you, like, this is painful. This is a painful journey to be on. It hurts a lot. And over and over again, though, what comes back to me is that what God is really asking us, what the story is really teaching us, this is true for everyone, is that are we willing to give to the point that it hurts? Are we willing to give to the point where we are saying, I am willing to embrace the crucified Lord in all of his form? Not just the glory that he has gained for me from dying on the cross, but to join him in his suffering. Because that is what Paul was doing. And Paul says that he considers it all loss in comparison, everything else, but to die is to gain for Christ, meaning that he's willing to give absolutely everything for the gospel. We wonder why people don't attend church anymore, right? We wonder why America at large is rejecting the Bible. We wonder why there's not an interest in Christianity in the way that there once was. We wonder why the book of Acts doesn't happen in the U.S., but it does abroad. I think I know the answer. It's right here. It's the fact that the original movement of the church was one based on self-sacrifice, based on giving it all for the sake of Christ, based in a movement that was so inspiring that people could not see it and walk away. We know from the church of Thessalonica that Paul went and he volunteered his time. He labored there. He went through all this journey with them. The persecution got so bad he had to leave. We know from that church that clearly people were seeing that if someone, if someone steps out and they make this choice and they make this sacrifice, they saw they saw Jesus in it. And they said, if someone is willing to go that far for me, for the sake of my soul, for the sake of my well-being, then how could I not believe in that Jesus? And this is the other thing we forget about the early church. Is that the early church was a movement of impoverished people who were rising around a faith and idea that it's in its very form could mean their death. And for many of them, it did. All of Jesus' disciples, and of course Judas you know, committed his own suicide walking away from Jesus, but all the rest of them 
outside of John, the evangelist, the author of the Gospel of John, all the rest of them died a martyrdom death. And so did Paul, who wrote this book, saying, I'm going to go to Rome. He ultimately did get there, but not on his own accord. I'm going to go to Rome, and I'm going to launch a mission to the ends of the earth for the sake of Christ's mission. So I don't think we want to talk about an empty love anymore, right? I mean, Christianity divorced from this self-sacrificial version is really just an empty thing. What Jesus is calling us to is so much more and so much more beautiful. And I think he's also calling us to intelligence, though, in the process. So you look at this and you look at the early church, and right off the bat in Acts 6, they're making decisions about how best to serve the impoverished. They're deciding, how are we going to serve the widows in our community? And in fact, the issue they're dealing with, we often forget this, when deacons are first appointed, the creation of deacons is what this is about. When this first happens in Acts 6, what's going on is actually a racial tension in their community. And it's the first racial reconciliation in the church. And they do it by appointing leaders who are all from the people who are being oppressed. It's actually affirmative action. I know it's a scary word, but that's what it is. And so they appoint these leaders who are all from the Greek side, at least according to their names, it seems like they were. And they instruct them, go care for the poor in a way that is fair, honest, representative. So here's my other question regarding this. We treat missions in a very colonial way, if you really get down to it. We don't send missionaries out to equip local leaders. We send them out essentially to replace them. To come in and to say, I'm going to do all the leadership and all the work and make myself so much a part of the society that they all depend on me. But what the early church does, and Paul does this, we see it in Thessalonica, we see it in Corinth, we see it in Timothy and Titus when he's talking about the appointment of leaders. Over and over again, his missionary model, which by the way is also primarily one where he works a good portion of the time, he In his missionary model, he is going out and he's saying, I'm going to raise up indigenous leaders and appoint them and teach them to lead. I'm not going to just teach a man to fish. I'm going to teach a man how to fish so that he can teach other people how to fish. And that's essentially what's going on. All right, Jesus, I will make you fishermen of men. And Paul takes that same concept and he just multiplies it. He says, okay, My goal is not to be everywhere. I can't, right? He can't be everywhere anyways. My goal is to multiply the ideas that Christ has given me, how he has worked in my life, and to multiply that in the lives of others, to empower local leadership. And this is incredible, right? We have this highly trained Jewish male who's also a Roman citizen who's training and empowering Greek local leadership non-Jewish leadership. And they would definitely know that he was Jewish. And so you can imagine there's this racial reconciliation again going on. And there's this crossing of lines. And this is why Paul says, you know, that there is neither Jew nor Greek in the church, but all are one and equal before God. Equality at its core, love at its core, what it truly is, is a Christian message. Martin Luther King Jr., 
Anybody remember his title? Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., right? I mean, every great movement that has truly changed the world has been from someone who went first, decided to make a self-sacrifice, and went for it. And he looked to Paul as his model too. And he said, how do you start a movement? How do you do what they were doing? I think we can do the same today. I think we can start the same kind of movement. I think we have to go first. I think that we have to look at all of our, all of us as our lives as being missionaries. That we are missionaries to our communities, where we are right now and wherever else God calls us. And we're also people who empower the global movement of the church. That we bridge the gap with our brothers and sisters around the world. And we make sure that the people in these remote areas of the world don't feel alone. And yes, we're going to have to send pioneering missionaries sometimes, but the goal of those missionaries should be to raise up local leaders and then to get out of the way and let the Holy Spirit do its work. And yes, there should be accountability. There should be transparency. There should be all these things. There should be intelligence in our giving and in how we monitor it all. But we should primarily be about how do we create a local grassroots movement here that is truly about Jesus. And we should be pulling together all these elements, right? How do we create economic development so these people can have jobs and sustainable lives? How do we meet needs here so that we can ensure that people have clean water and do the basic functions of caring for those that Jesus asked us to, the least of these? And how do we raise up a church planting movement here? A church that multiplies itself. And I'm not talking about churches that build buildings. I'm talking about churches that multiply themselves in smaller groups multiplying out. And sometimes we're going to need to build buildings. Sure. But that's not the primary mode. It's not the primary operation. So I think about the, the, the church planters that I know that work in Bihar and the amazing sacrifices that they make. I think about the four that we've sponsored with Jesus Economy and the amazing work that they're doing in the field. And how every day they're, you know, going from village to village on bicycles, mind you, on dirt, very difficult roads to bring the gospel from place to place and to empower local leaders. And now, get this, in Bihar, we are seeing a movement from the book of Acts to the books of 1 Timothy and Titus. What I mean by that is that we're seeing thousands of people come to Christ. And now we're having to say, how do we appoint more local leaders, because we have these local indigenous church planters, but they need to multiply themselves now and raise up leaders in their own communities that they're serving in. And the goal of our church planters and what they've been doing is that once they've appointed this local leadership, they move on to a new region to bring the gospel. Because, right, they're very apostolic in their ideas. They're much like Paul or Timothy, right? They're trying to be sending people. They, they're sent out and they're sending people out themselves. And there's a lot of other interesting parallels there. That's just a few. But what we're seeing is we're seeing the gospel go to the ends of the earth. So I believe that if churches around the world were to partner and they were to utilize things like the technology we have in front of us, I mean, imagine this. I can have a church planter in the field with a question about the Bible and he can call me or video chat me and I can answer it. From Washington State, I can answer a question in a remote village in Northeast India because companies like Facebook and Google are sending out satellites for 3G all over the place thanks to companies like SpaceX who can now launch 
rockets into space that can then come back to Earth and be reused? What? When did that happen? Well, have self-driving cars next. No, we already do. So the crazy thing is this is the world we live in, right? Where 3G, 4G, LTE is going to be everywhere. Everywhere. Even in the most remote villages. I have photos of church planters in the field, and there's a guy standing behind him on his iPhone in a remote poor village in India. Now, the guy on the iPhone obviously isn't from the village. He's there with, you know, checking on the church planters. But you're like, what? That guy's on his phone. Here's what it all crystallized for me on this point. When I was in Bihar, I'm sitting next to this guy as a church planter. And he goes, your name's John D. Barry, right? I said, yeah. And he goes, spelled B-A-R-R-Y. Yes. Because this is you, right? He turns his little Motorola flip phone around to me. And he's got my bio on JesusEconomy.org up. And first of all, the first thought I have as a guy who used to work tech is, wow, it looks really good on there. Amazed that it responded so well as a website. Second thought I have <laughs> is that, wow, if I can give that guy my bio way out here and he just Googled it and found it, I can also give him a digital study Bible, a digital Bible dictionary, works translated into Hindi that are Bible studies for him to lead. We don't need to worry about getting printing technology to some remote place or shipping books. We can, all we need to do is ship iPhones out. Imagine if I could buy a bucket full of iPhone 3s or 4s and ship them to India. Imagine what could happen if I could hook them up with satellite technology to allow for them to get online and do all these things. Now, these are elements we haven't done yet, but you can bet that I'm thinking about it. Because what I'm thinking is in the world of SpaceX, Facebook, and Google, and the world where we're all interconnected through the internet, when this guy can know probably more about me than even you in this room know, unless you've already read my bio online, in just seconds in remote Northeast India, imagine what could be for discipleship. Imagine if we were delivering video courses to him. What if we had a seminary that was all remote? Well, some of those already exist in the U.S., right? Why not there? This is the world of the future of missions. Our world is more interconnected than it ever has been. And if we innovate and we think about this problem, missions as a problem that we can solve, we could legitimately bring the gospel to the last unreached people groups in our lifetime. We could do this in our lifetime. We got a guy as a CEO in the U.S., who's talking about bringing people to Mars, right? And we used to look at him like he was crazy, but now he has rockets coming back from space and he's reusing them. Now he doesn't look so crazy. Pretty soon, you know, Matt Damon's going to be stuck on Mars and we're going to have to go get him. <laughs> so what I'm saying is that if we can get Matt Damon stuck on Mars, we can certainly, and he can science his way out of it, right? We can certainly science our way out of this problem. Why, as the church, are we not doing this? Imagine if we took all the innovative power. We have all these amazing business leaders in our churches. We have all these people who know tech, all these things. And we're letting all that energy go somewhere else. What if we put it into this? What if the algorithm we were trying to solve was how to place a missionary in every last unreached people group? What if the algorithm we were trying to solve was how to create a Bible translation for every last language that doesn't have one? And then what if we were delivering those things digitally? I, 
I mean, it just blows my mind. And I also think about how cheap indigenous movements are. Like, it's just cheap. I can fund a church planter with a fair wage, with all of their expenses, all of it, for $226 a month in Bihar. Man, I can't buy airfare that cheap, right? It's unbelievable. And this is a person making a fair wage because in that situation with what things cost and the exchange of the American dollar, like God willing, it will stay strong because it helps us in missions. With that setting, when I'm exchanging into the rupee, I can do drastic things with that amount of money. Unbelievable things. And it's just so small for us. So I'm thinking about all of this and I'm thinking the church should be innovating this space. And we should be thinking holistically about how we approach poverty and reaching the unreached. How we bring together needs and creating jobs, planting churches. How do we care for a person's soul, mind, and body? And how can we leverage the opportunities of our world, every last one, to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth? How can we bring the joy to young people like this, like this young lady I met in India? How can we bring the joy of Christ to her? How can we equip church planters in these remote areas? Because I believe that justice is a central cry of the Bible. The works of the prophets are full of this, right? All the way from Micah to Isaiah to Jeremiah to Amos, over and over again. Isaiah puts it this way, learn to do good. I love that. Learn to do good. Should be how we teach youth, right? Learn to do good. It's the way we should teach ourselves. Seek justice. Rescue. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. That's Isaiah 1.16. That's how the book of Isaiah opens. Guess what Isaiah's answer to that is? Isaiah 53, crucified Lord, prophesied 500 years before Jesus that he would suffer, die, and rise for us. And from there, the book of Isaiah opens into this grand narrative of peace and jubilee reaching across the world. That is the cry of the book of Isaiah. How do we rescue these people? How do we come alongside them? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And Jesus told us that he will distinguish between those who truly know him and those who do not by how they care for the marginalized, outsider, prisoner, impoverished. And we know from James that true religion is loving the hurting and the poor, the widow and the orphan. And I think it is unjust when a child is to go without clean water, health care, education. I think we can all agree on that. That is an unjust situation. It is unjust when a parent doesn't have access to a fair-paying job here or elsewhere. They can lift their family out of poverty. It's unjust when there are millions of people who have never heard the name of Jesus. That's an unjust situation. So I think let's do something about it. Why not? We can send rockets to space, take them back again. Let's innovate to bring about a future of missions where every last person has heard the name of Jesus and experienced his love. Let's innovate to bring about a situation where every last person has heard the name of Jesus and truly experienced his love. That is today's Christian cry. That is missions in an interconnected world.